Last year, the federal government debuted a three-digit suicide prevention hotline phone number, 988. It replaced the earlier 10-digit number. The new number is thanks to the work of a team at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Team members are now finalists in this year's Service to America medals program. And two of the finalists, James Wright and Dr. Richard McKeon, join me now. Gentlemen, good to have you with us. Good to be here. Great to be here. And let's begin with why. I mean, it's easier to remember 988 than it is to remember whatever the old number was. But it sounds like there's more to it than just simply a three-digit phone number. Or tell us more about this program. Well, I can start, James. So certainly one part of it is that it's easier to remember. And, and part of the context for that is that we want it to be easier to remember for people, but particularly when they're in a crisis. One thing that SAMHSA said in our report to the Federal Communications Commission when we were asked to weigh in on whether a three-digit number was feasible and whether it could be effective is that we indicated that, you know, for example, if someone was having chest pains and they were with a family member, it's likely despite the stress of that situation of the medical crisis that both the person and the family member are going to remember the number 911, but that they were not in a similar situation in a suicidal crisis. It was unlikely that either the family member or the person themselves would remember the 10-digit number. We additionally felt that when you looked at the history of 911, it played a catalytic role in promoting the development of emergency medical services in America. So in our report to the FCC, we also indicated that we thought a three-digit number could play a similarly transformative role in behavioral health crisis services across the country. And we have been very gratified the extent to which that vision has been um, subscribed to by states, localities, providers, and crisis centers across the country. And just a detail question, it is easier to remember clearly 988 than, than again, the old number, which I don't have at the top of my head either. But more than easier to remember a time of crisis, is there the phenomenon that because it's easy to remember, someone might be more likely to dial that number and therefore seek the help they need? It seems like a slight difference, but I think there's a distinction there. It, absolutely, there is. I, I mean, at the heart of 988 is ease of access, um, but also it is um, uh, easier to embed um, within uh, communications, um, uh, hopefully uh, really uh, bringing down stigma of uh, seeking help for mental health concerns. And so we're seeing this play out as uh, we see youth and young adults uh, specifically increase access to 988, especially for uh, chat and text services, which I'm sure we'll get into um, later. And let's set the scene here. I mean, how many annual calls was the old 800 number getting? I mean, what's the extent and scope of this whole situation in the first place? Yeah, you know, uh, looking back, the old 800 number from the inception, I think the very first year we were a little bit under 50,000 contacts total. In uh, 2022, uh, we had reached between three and four million contacts. Well, since the re we say that because we launched in the middle of 2022, 
Uh, since then, uh, we've seen a significant increase of phone, chat, and text. Phone uh, was right under 50% of increase uh, with the transition to 988. But our biggest transfer, or our biggest increase has been chat and text, specifically text. This is the first time we activated fully that number. And since then, it has been consistently over a thousand percent increase. Wow. So someone can text to that same number and someone will be there to answer that text? That is correct. We're speaking with James Wright. He is Director of Crisis Operations and Dr. Richard McKeon, Senior Advisor in the 988 program at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They are both finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. And is there any way of measuring the quality of a certain call? That is to say, if there were 50,000 a year, probably safe to say everyone that called really was in crisis. With 988 being so easy and accessible, are they all real suicide calls? Is there a way of determining that? Well, we do have some information on that. First of all, there is has been a series of evaluation studies led by Dr. Madeline Gould at Columbia University that has looked at the effectiveness of calling the lifeline. Now, these studies were all done pre-988. And what it found was that callers had suicidal ideation and hopelessness reduced during the call. It, they also did show that there could be some recurrence of suicidal ideation over the next six weeks, which led us to promote the importance of follow-up calls as a part of what crisis call centers ought to, ought to be doing. The evaluation studies also showed that even for callers who were at imminent risk for suicide, that in many instances, their risk was able to be reduced enough on the phone that emergency intervention was not needed. Making, you know, access to 988 an, an important alternative to 911 in the use of uh, emergency services, including police and uh, emergency medical services in those kinds of situations. Now, for chat and text, we actually have more information because there is a pre-chat and pretext survey. And there, what we know is that the majority of the people who chat and text are currently suicidal. The, for callers, it is about 18%, I think, of callers who are currently suicidal. Others might have been suicidal in the past, but not at the moment, or they could be a third-party caller, someone, a family member calling about a loved one. But someone doesn't have to be suicidal in order to call 988. You know, for example, if somebody's feeling depressed and hopeless, we certainly don't want them to have to wait until they're suicidal to call. We want them to call earlier. Or if it is sure. another kind of behavioral health crisis, we want them to be able to call. It doesn't, they do not have to be suicidal at the time in order to call. And with a 50% increase or a 1,000% increase in texts and calls and so forth, who answers these calls and texts? And what did you have to do on the back end to make sure that when someone does call with calls up 50%, it's not like the IRS, nobody answers? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And again, that was that was with the transition to uh, 98. We continue to see our contacts increased month over. And so those, those don't stay um, stagnant. But um, we do have actually that data 
publicly posted on SAMHSA's website. You can go to samhsa.gov slash 988, and there's a performance metrics tab, which we uh, really want to make sure we're as transparent as possible with the outcomes of this program. Uh, The way that the system is set up is we have over 210 crisis centers across the nation um, in every state. Uh, And when you call 988, you're provided a list of options to connect to care. If you uh, choose those, you can be connected to the Veterans Crisis Line or our Spanish services. Um, We were proud to extend our services further to offer direct services for LGBTQ youth at the end of um, September of last year. And then otherwise, you would be routed to your nearest crisis center. You can um, also find out where those crisis centers are on the uh, 988lifeline.org website. And we do route currently by area code, looking at ways to continue to improve reaching those local crisis centers with those direct calls. But did more people have to be added to the crisis centers to handle the volume or can the same? Uh, it's, it's a great question because workforce has been a significant priority with SAMHSA and 988 and the states helping support crisis centers. Uh, funding went out from SAMHSA to states and territories to build workforce specifically prior to the transition of 988. And so, yes, it has taken a tremendous effort from states and crisis centers to plan for 988 and to um, help respond to the increased demand. And earlier you mentioned in reports to the FCC, what is required to establish a three-digit number? And it sounds like the FCC has the say over this? Yes, absolutely. It's a fascinating story. The effort actually started in the state of Utah because they wanted a three-digit number for suicide prevention in Utah. And what they learned is that that's not something that a state could do because the Federal Communications Commission has authority um, over that. And so they work with their congressional delegation who worked in a bipartisan fashion to ultimately pass the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Improvement Act, which asked for SAMHSA and the Veterans Administration to do reports to the Federal Communications Commission about whether a three-digit number was advisable and could be effective. SAMHSA and the VA did those reports, and our reports strongly supported a three-digit number. And under that same law, the FCC was required to report to Congress on the whether a three-digit number was uh, advisable, and to make recommendations. And the FCC, in their report to Congress, recommended 988 be that number. And that was uh, followed by the National Suicide Hotline Designation Act, which put 988 into law as the new uh, number. And And then the FCC oversaw the access to 988, because every cell phone, every landline, every voiceover internet device in the United States had to have 988 made operable. And so the FCC oversaw that. SAMHSA's role was to oversee that there would be the capacity to answer the calls, the chats, the texts by by the date of July 16th, 2022, that the FCC had set. Yeah, that is an interesting story. And just, again, a detail question. Why not 999 or 977? That's a great question. And the FCC did a thorough review of those um, of options, of three-digit options, uh, many of which 
uh, may have area codes that are currently being utilized across the nation. And then others, uh, they had to evaluate for international dialing codes. So really, when it came down to it, they identified that 988 was an easy-to-remember number, uh, and it really had, from their understanding, the least amount of impact for a transition itself. There was no area code that started. There was no 988 area code, so they didn't have to worry about that. They they just had to worry about places that allowed within area code dialing without dialing the area code that started with 988. And there were a bunch of those that the FCC had to work with to make changes. And just a final question, uh, philosophically, I guess, over time, is there an effort to understand suicide itself based on analytics applied to the content of these millions of calls and chats? Well, I think that, I mean, there are certainly analytics that are being applied to suicide prevention in general. Nothing like that is is happening regarding calls, chats, and texts to the lifeline. As I said, there have been evaluation studies in the past. We are planning evaluation studies for the future. But that kind of automatic use of data is is not part of uh, what happens with 988. And we want people to feel comfortable knowing that, you know, their information is secure when they contact us, you know, unless there is a life and death uh, emergency that requires an, an emergency intervention. And in the meantime, though, you know that every day you are saving lives. Exactly. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in 
abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think 
you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.